From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jamie Kaiser. A new conservative on the U.S. Supreme Court could bring big changes to environmental law. With Kennedy gone and with Kavanaugh replacing him, there's a very real risk that the Massachusetts versus EPA precedent, that the most important single judicial decision we have on climate change, could be subject to either being overruled or greatly modified. Also, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt may be gone, but his agenda lives on. I think we'll continue to see the EPA Administrator sideline science. I think we'll have delays in health risk assessments. We'll see delays in restrictions on chemicals. We won't see any type of restrictions, probably. Those stories this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jamie Kaiser. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Former EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, who was forced to resign July 5th amid 13 different federal investigations, was also slow to get his job done. On July 10th, as Deputy Administrator Andrew Wheeler took charge as acting head, the EPA finally delivered to the White House a proposed rule to replace the Clean Power Plan, though Mr. Pruitt had announced he would do it back in March of 2017. Mr. Wheeler is a former coal lobbyist and Senate staffer, and his critics expect him to follow Scott Pruitt's pattern of sidelining science. Andrew Wheeler has been skeptical of climate science and proposed regulations under TSCA, the updated Toxic Substances Control Act. For a look at what's ahead for the EPA, Britt Erickson, senior editor at Chemical and Engineering News, joins us. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. So remind us what the EPA is, in fact, responsible for regulating and what you see are some of the biggest risks in this transition from Mr. Pruitt to Mr. Wheeler. Well, under TSCA, EPA is regulating chemicals, new chemicals that come onto the market. They're required to look at the safety of these chemicals, make sure there's no risk to human health before they go onto the market. Under Pruitt, they kind of sideline the science. They look the other way, say, well, just going to look at very small uses of the chemical rather than all the comprehensive uses of a chemical. So we end up with no risk. And so what can we expect now going forward? I think we'll continue to see the EPA administrator sideline science. I think we'll have delays in health risk assessments. We'll see delays in chemical bans. We'll see delays in restrictions on chemicals. We won't see any type of restrictions, probably. Yeah, what about these reports that uh, Scott Pruitt had been delaying the release of a report on human health effects from formaldehyde? Now that Mr. Wheeler is there, how might that change? And, And by the way, what's this all about, the formaldehyde thing? So the formaldehyde assessment has been going on for a very long time. Under Senator Inhofe, I believe, when Andrew Wheeler was working for Senator Inhofe, the EPA delayed the assessment because Inhofe was pushing them to do so. And I believe we'll see more of the same. Under Wheeler, we're going to see more delays. They've never released this assessment. Current staff at EPA is saying uh, that they've been told to delay it. So... Talk to me about some of the other chemical and pollutant laws that have been, well, pushed around by Scott Pruitt's legacy. Well, one of the ones I'm very concerned about is methylene chloride in paint removers. And uh, under the Obama administration, the EPA had 
proposed to ban that use. When Scott Pruitt came on board, the ban was delayed. He then met with several families that had sons, who young men who had passed away from using this chemical that they had purchased at their local hardware store. So he promised, Pruitt promised that he would do something about this and finalize the methylene chloride rule. He did not, so now it's up to Wheeler to do so, and we don't know whether he will. Now, what about the uh, pesticides? Mr. Pruitt sat on uh, moving forward with some of the regulations, indeed went against what some of the recommendations of his science panels had on some of these pesticides. What are the chemicals we're talking about here, and what might be happening with them now? That's correct. Chlorpyrifos is a big one that when Pruitt came on board, he he decided to put that ban on hold. That was a, a proposal under the Obama administration. And so that, that's been sitting. Uh, there are lawsuits about that. This is a pretty nasty chemical. It affects children's nervous systems, neurodevelopmental effects in children. It affects pregnant women. It affects the unborn. So it's used very widely. For what kind of things is it used for? Just about every crop out there. I believe it's you know, specialty crops, nuts and orchards. and There's a whole slew of vegetables it's used on. So I gather industry was not happy at the prospect of it perhaps not being able to be used or being highly restricted in its use. That's correct. This is a huge moneymaker for the chemical industry. Um, what other pesticides should we be concerned about at this point? One that I'm very concerned about personally is a new herbicide on the market called dicamba. Now, this came out just last year. It was probably the first time it was widely used. But this year, it's double the usage, and we're starting to see a drift problem. So it's not staying on the intended target, which is soybeans and cotton. These are genetically modified crops that are they're resistant to the herbicide. But when the herbicide drifts off the field into the neighbor's field, it will kill everything that has a broad leaf. So I'm talking about vegetable gardens, grapes, orchards, peaches, any broadleaf landscaping plants. So you can see the problem where you have residential areas next door to a soybean field and you have this large amount of drift, which can go, what I hear, up to a mile under some conditions. We've got trees that are dying. We have maple trees that are dying. We have beautiful mimosa trees that are dying. This is a huge problem all across the U.S. Uh, Missouri last year, there was a murder over this. A murder? A farmer went against his neighbor and shot him because his neighbor drifted herbicide onto his land. So this is going to get ugly this year, I predict. Now, Scott Pruitt was, can we say, flamboyant? Uh, he was came right as a bright light there in Washington. What's the reputation of Andrew Wheeler in terms of publicity and the prospect of very visible scandal, do you think? Well, I think he's much more careful. I think he'll be uh, following the law more carefully than Pruitt was doing. And he also has a lot of allies on Capitol Hill. Remember, he worked for Senator Inhofe, so he's got a lot of connections on the Hill. He can make things happen. He has a, a charm about him that he can get along with both sides. So I think he will try to please the environmentalists much more so than Pruitt ever would want to do. So tell me, what's the mood inside the Environmental Protection Agency after this transition? 
You know, that's a good question. I think the morale was so low when Pruitt was there. That's going to be very hard for Wheeler to rebuild morale. I think a lot of senior leadership has left and they really need to start over, basically. And he's, he's got a hard time ahead of him. To what extent might he garner more respect from folks who have spent their careers at the EPA compared to Mr. Pruitt, do you think? Well, what I've heard is that he he has a good ear. He's listening to the staff. He's actually coming around and talking to people, which Pruitt never did. So he he's asking people what you know what issues are you facing, and he he seems to be genuinely concerned. So that's a good sign. Um, so the senior scientists are sounds like they're getting more respect from him, at least on an interpersonal level. But what are their concerns about the outcomes that might result from his leadership there? Well, looking at his background, I think there's some concern. He worked for the fossil fuel industry. There's concern that he will not move forward with any regulations against that industry. Uh, Things like the climate change rules, the CO2 emissions from power plants, we're, we're likely to see no progress in that area. You know, a lot of career staffers really believe in protecting the environment. And if... If you cannot do that under your leadership, it makes your job very difficult. Britt Erickson is a senior editor at Chemical and Engineering News. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Around 1,000 hikers recently took part in the Rachel Carson Challenge. It's a 35-mile hike outside Pittsburgh, along a trail named after one of the region's most famous residents, credited with inspiring the modern environmental movement. But hikers this year saw a new addition on the trail, the fracking industry. Reed Frazier of the Allegheny Front has our story. Bob Mulshine is in charge of the Rachel Carson Challenge, an increasingly popular endurance hike through Pittsburgh's northern suburbs. He's a five-time finisher of the challenge, a brutal sunup-to-sundown march up and down hilly terrain. Many don't finish. A few days before the one-day hike is set to begin, Mulshine is taking me out to see the route. We hike over a wooded knob. Then the woods end. So that's a nice wide swath. We look out over a pipeline right-of-way, about 50 feet wide. So this was, this is the trail right here? Yes. Or was? Or was. Where once there was a forest, now there's a clear-cut alley leading to a drilling rig, a few hundred feet away, which Mulshine just now notices. Oh, and there's the drill site. Uh, Now that this is cleared, you can see it. I have not, had not seen that before. Mulshine's surprised, but he's happy with the work he sees. So the trees have been taken down and removed. There's no big... The rig is for a Marcellus Shale well pad that Range Resources is developing here on a portion of the trail in Indiana Township. To build the pad, the company rerouted a portion of the trail not far from here. This year, Mulshine says hundreds of hikers will see the drilling operations as they pass by. His main concern is that hikers don't get lost when they cross this pipeline right-of-way. So all we would have to do is put some kind of markers that would keep people walking right across that and um, 
for us as a hiking group, this is not an inconvenience. Molshine says this is the first time there's been fracking along the Rachel Carson, but it's hardly the only industrial activity on the route. The trail skirts busy suburban roads, power lines, even a coal ash pile. He says the Marcellus shale industry is just another impediment to navigate around. We don't own any of the trail. We do not control this property at all. We walk um, totally at the, from the generosity of our volunteers who maintain the trails and the landowners and the people who control the land um, when they give us their permission to use it. Still, not everyone's happy about the drilling. Kenton Ganster has hiked the Rachel Carson Challenge. Today, he's hiking a section of the trail with his mother, Kathleen who's done the Rachel Carson Challenge four times and volunteers for the nonprofit that runs it. He says it was a shock to see a drilling rig so close to the trail. Yeah, it's, it's just not something you really want to see. It's like a strip mine or anything else like that. You just really don't want to see it out here when you're coming to get away from all the industrialism and everything. Even though he doesn't like having the drilling rig so close to the trail, he thinks it's good for the urbanites who hike it to be able to see where their energy comes from silver lining kind of thing. I do think it's good for the Rachel Carson type of crowd people to see it because, I mean, you can look at it and decide what you think and you can smell it and decide what you think. You know what I mean? And and just see, is that something you want in your backyard? Because that's essentially what this is, is Pittsburgh's backyard. Range Resources, which is a sponsor of the hike this year, didn't respond to interview requests. But Mulshine said he's happy with how the companies handled the situation. We were thrilled that a drilling company um, wasn't trying to force us out of the woods. But what would Rachel Carson, whose book Silent Spring helped launch the environmental movement in the 60s, think of fracking taking place along a trail named after her? Mulshine says he doesn't know. Would she like this? She, she bought a place up in Maine, <laughs> a very secluded place up in Maine. Um, We're trying to find the best we can for the people that are living in the area. And doing that, he says, involves compromise and cutting a trail around the obstacles. I'm Reed Frazier. Reed Frazier reports for the Allegheny Front. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. In a flourish of primetime television... President Trump announced the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, to replace retiring Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. While Justice Kennedy has a reputation as a moderate conservative who often tipped the balance in key cases, Judge Kavanaugh is seen as further to the right and could solidify conservative control of the high court for decades, should he be confirmed. For a look at Judge Kavanaugh's record on the environment, we turn to Vermont Law School professor Pat Parento. Welcome back to the program, Pat. Thank you, Jamie. Good to be here. Of course, 
Judge Brett Kavanaugh moved to the forefront pretty quickly as a likely contender for the nomination. He was a frontrunner, so this didn't come as a huge surprise to anybody. But what was your first reaction when you learned that President Trump had picked him? Well, of the four finalists that we had heard the president had narrowed the list down to, I was not surprised that Kavanaugh would be a leading contender. But I have to say, from an environmental standpoint, based upon what I know about his track record of of making decisions, he's probably the worst pick (laughs) of the four. That may not be true of some other social issues, particularly things like Roe versus Wade that everybody's talking about. But when it comes to environmental law, the other three uh, names on that list did not have much of a track record to begin with and might have been actually more open to seeing that environmental law oftentimes means regulation, oftentimes means federal regulation. And this is something that Brett Kavanaugh has been very skeptical about over his career. And so why do you believe the president chose him? Well, I mean, the president asked for a list of eligible judges from the Federalist Society, and that's what he got. He got a list of 25 judges that the Federalist Society had handpicked He also consulted with the Heritage Foundation. These are obviously both very conservative, even right-wing political entities in the country. And from there, he winnowed it down to these four. So, I mean, this is um, a Supreme Court, both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, assuming he will be confirmed, which is probably inevitable. We will have a Supreme Court that has been tilted by, frankly, some very narrow special interests in the country. Although Brett Kavanaugh is relatively young, even Democrats wouldn't say that he's not experienced. I mean, he has a long storied reputation in conservative legal circles. So let's dig into some of the cases that he's heard about the environment and how they went. So take the mercury rule for an example. This is a very expensive rule in terms of what it would cost to meet the standards to protect public health. But Brett Kavanaugh, when the rule came to his court and his panel, immediately said, you need EPA, you need to justify a rule like this with a lot more economic data than I see in this record. Now, ultimately, the Mercury rule was actually upheld by the Supreme Court. But when Kavanaugh looked at the rule, he was not convinced that it should be upheld and and wanted more economic justification. The same thing when it came to the clean power plan. Of course, the D.C. Circuit heard arguments challenging the Obama clean power plan, has never issued a decision, has been staying the effect of that case for the entire time that Trump's been in office. But Kavanaugh, during the oral argument, was one of the few judges to express serious doubt about whether the courts should be involved in making policy on climate change. Mm -hmm. What can you say in terms of how he's been on cases dealing with endangered species or species protection? Well, interesting you should ask that, Jamie, because the very first case on the docket of the Supreme Court in October is a case challenging protection of critical habitat for this little frog, the dusky gopher frog, in Louisiana. The habitat in question is owned by the Weyerhaeuser Company. Weyerhaeuser doesn't like the idea that the Endangered Species Act would apply to its property. So if 
Kavanaugh is seated by October, which is McConnell's, Senator McConnell's goal, we'll find out right away what he thinks about the application of the Endangered Species Act to private property. That's going to be the telling point. Kavanaugh has shown a real concern for private property, a real concern for the costs of regulation on industry. And so this is a tailor-made case for him to say, I don't think the Endangered Species Act should be applied in this kind of a situation. And of course, when you think about it, the fate of most of the listed species, endangered species, depends on what happens on private land. After all, most of the land in the country is private. To what extent does Kavanaugh acknowledge the reality of climate change? Or to what extent has he shown the ability to consider climate science as evidence? He has acknowledged the science behind climate change. Let let me just say, Brett Kavanaugh is a brilliant lawyer and judge. That's what makes him, in my mind, a more formidable, if you will, adversary when it comes to extending environmental law. So he doesn't question that climate change is real, that it's serious, that it demands attention. His point is it's up to Congress to do it, not the courts. And my view is the courts do have a role in this process. He says courts are required to interpret the law, not make the law. That's a little disingenuous, frankly. When you look at the language of a statute, which is written very generally, often very ambiguous, subject to many different interpretations, the court is actually making a choice as to how to interpret the law. And by making that choice, they are making law. One message from this appointment is we better redouble our efforts at the political level. And that means the electoral level. And that means November elections. We can't look to the courts. We certainly can't look to the Supreme Court at this point. We're going to have to change the Congress, elect people who are willing to look at the science and come up with creative approaches in a hurry, because we don't have a lot of time to address these problems. But the courts, I'm sorry to say, are a dead end. So, Pat, what are the chances that Brett Kavanaugh could end up becoming something of a David Souter? Uh, David Souter was appointed during the Reagan administration, was expected to be quite conservative, but really ended up being more moderate. Well, that's a good comparison because David Souter was also a very, I would call him cerebral, intellectually curious about issues. So you could say that the Supreme Court actually changed Justice Souter when he got there and he began to grapple with some of these major issues, including actually some important environmental questions that came before the court when Souter was there. Kavanaugh is interesting in that I see the same kind of intellectual curiosity. And so there is certainly the possibility that Kavanaugh will change and he may green up a little bit. Obviously, there's this vacancy because Justice Anthony Kennedy is retiring from the Supreme Court. Both Brett Kavanaugh and Gorsuch were actually clerks for Kennedy. How would you characterize Anthony Kennedy's legacy when it comes to the environment? The thing about Kennedy was, and and we can hope that Kavanaugh got some of this training from Kennedy, was Kennedy was a pragmatist. He was less an ideologue in sort of the most doctrinaire sense. And he was more of an incrementalist, which means 
Kennedy didn't like great, big, sweeping decisions other than, of course, marriage equality, which I think you could argue was a pretty sweeping decision. But in most of the environmental type cases where Kennedy was involved, he was looking at the issues from the standpoint of understanding the purpose of the statute. The best example I can give you is the Kennedy's concurring opinion in the infamous Rapanos case dealing with the Clean Water Act. And that opinion shows you that Kennedy was willing to engage with the science. He went into lots of the principles of ecology and how watersheds function and why it was important to protect streams and wetlands and so forth. He dug into the facts and he wanted to be informed about why it was so complicated. You don't see many of the conservative justices like Scalia engaging in that. Now, what environment and public health cases are winding their way through the courts right now that could have a very different outcome with Kennedy gone and a conservative like Kavanaugh on the court? Yeah. So the big one, of course, would be Massachusetts versus EPA, where Kennedy was the critical fifth vote in favor of a ruling that EPA not only had the authority to regulate carbon pollution under the Clean Air Act, but it had the duty to do so once a determination had been made that carbon pollution threatens public health and welfare, which of course it does. There's no question about that. So with Kennedy gone and with Kavanaugh replacing him, there's a very real risk that the Massachusetts versus EPA precedent, the most important single judicial decision we have on climate change, could be subject to either being overruled or greatly modified. And the way that will happen Even with Pruitt gone, his successor, Wheeler, is going to continue Pruitt's mission to adopt a clean power plan that is so weak, it's almost laughable. And that plan, of course, will be challenged by many of the states and environmental groups that are pressing for stronger climate change regulations. And that will get to the Supreme Court. There's no question about it. It's a big enough issue. It will get there. And so Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are now in a position with the other conservatives on the court to rule in a way that basically could close the door to meaningful regulation of carbon pollution under the Clean Air Act. Pat Parento is a professor at Vermont Law School. Pat, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. All right, let's turn now to Peter Dykstra to take a look beyond the headlines. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. He's on the line now from Atlanta, Georgia, where, hey, it's July, so it's got to be hot down there. Hi, Steve. It's actually a little bit cooler than we normally get here in um, in July, but Atlanta's an exception right now. And in a minute, we're going to talk about how hot it is in the rest of the Northern Hemisphere. Um, Let me start with something uh, that I found to be really surprising, and I'm going to give you a little uh, quiz. Can you tell me which well-heeled, famous, multi-million member American nonprofit organization is showing surprising support among its members for buying solar panels? Well, let's see. It has to be the National Wildlife uh, Federation or or the AARP or UNICEF? Uh, Nope. YMCA? Nope, nope, no to all. It is the National Rifle Association, the NRA. According to a small survey done by 
uh, a group called Switch. And according to their telephone survey, 38% of the NRA members they talked to said they own solar panels. That compares to a 17% national average, uh, just about two to one. Wow. So how does that support by NRA members translate when it comes to the ballot box or issues regarding you know, spending government money on clean energy? I would say NRA members are still going to vote for who likes guns and who doesn't like guns. And that doesn't necessarily bode well for clean energy candidates. I thought it was a noticeable stat. Another one in this telephone survey from Switch uh, said that red states, the ones that supported Donald Trump in the election, the ones that tend to elect Republican members of Congress and senators, uh, support federal help for clean energy by 77 percent. That almost ties the support from blue states, which is at 80 percent. So it almost doesn't matter whether you like Donald Trump or not. You tend to want to see solar energy and wind energy succeed. So red states are going green energy. Um but hey, what about the weather you mentioned earlier? Uh, like I said, we're going to talk about absurd temperatures in almost all of the Northern Hemisphere. This past week, there have been records set across the globe, 108 degrees in Armenia, uh, an all-time record 127 degrees in a town in Iran. Canada, which never sees hot temperatures, is seeing a heat wave that's caused dozens of deaths. Denver, 104 degrees, that's unheard of. LA, 111 degrees. And the one that really knocked me off my chair, Scotland, where it's never hot, was 92 degrees this past week. Yeah, that's right. You go to Scotland, you got to bring a sweater with you. But it's not just heat that's behaving in an extreme way uh, right now, is it? Right. Uh, There are extremes in the other direction uh, as well. And climate scientists will tell you every time that one weather event does not a proving fact make for climate change. But there are so many of them right now. Atlantic hurricanes. We're already on our third named storm in early July. That normally doesn't happen until early August. In China, Typhoon Maria, huge typhoon early in the season. And in Japan, there has, uh, there's been tragedy, uh, triple-figure death tolls from unprecedentedly heavy rains. Hmm. Okay, let's take a look back in the history vaults. We'll go back to July 1906, when the New York Botanical Garden published a paper on an emerging blight and epidemic fungus that was beginning to take out American chestnut trees. Now, the chestnut was an iconic tree in the early days of our country. It covered uh, forests all over the eastern half of the U.S., and it was a favored wood because it was durable, and it made for uh, good fencing, it made for good furniture, and it particularly made for good log cabins back in the day when we were settling this country. So the blight virtually wiped out the trees, but I sense there's a but here. There is, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, a big but. And that's that the American chestnut tree was largely wiped out through the 20th century, but it may be on the way back through the American Chestnut Foundation, working with various universities. They've been crossbreeding other species of chestnut tree, the black chestnut, the Chinese chestnut, that are uh, more resistant to chestnut blight, this uh, fungus that's wiped out American chestnuts, and they're, they're seeing some results. It's taken longer than they had hoped, but we may be witnessing one of the most spectacular comeback stories from a vanishing species that we've ever seen. Ah, oh, indeed, that would be terrific. Thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. 
We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, a major teaching hospital looks to its own roof as a source of food as medicine. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Keep listening. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jamie Kaiser. And I'm Steve Kerwood. The desert southwest is in the midst of an extreme drought. The tinder dry conditions have prompted rare national forest closures in Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona to reduce the risk of someone sparking a devastating forest fire. And as Bird Notes' Michael Stein tells us, even some desert birds hold back their sweet songs of courtship as long as the land remains bone dry. In July in southeast Arizona, Midday temperatures soar above 100 degrees. A cicada's high-pitched whine adds an edge to the searing heat. But relief is coming. The monsoon season begins. Winds from the south draw tropical moisture northward into the Sonoran Desert. Moist air colliding with intense heat and mountainous terrain breeds epic thunderstorms. Rainfall rejuvenates the arid land. Grass grows lush. Wildflowers spring forth. Gullies once dusty now rush with water. And birds sing. Cats and sparrows have waited for the late summer rains to begin their courtship. Now the males sing their plaintive phrases almost nonstop. Botterized sparrows add their distinctive sputters and trills. And a rufous-winged sparrow voices its gentle melody. The summer monsoon refreshes the desert world like a second spring. I'm Michael Stein. For pictures and more about the Cassin Sparrow, go to our website, LOE.org. Hey, Jamie, I heard you were at a hospital recently. I was, but don't worry. I'm in fine health. Oh, good. But hey, why were you there? I actually stopped by Boston Medical Center to check out a new farm they started up. A hospital that's farming? (laughs) I was surprised, too. For one Boston hospital, feeding patients is about more than taking in calories. Food is medicine here. And they're getting that food from an unusual location. 
So yeah, we are up on the rooftop farm here at Boston Medical Center, and right now we are on top of the power plant and shipping receiving building. That's Lindsay Allen. She's the manager of Boston Medical Center's rooftop farm. It's considered the first in New England. Allen joined the BMC staff last year as its first farm manager. What was once a flat black roof provides prime real estate for roughly 25 varieties of fruits and vegetables that feed hospital patients, visitors, and employees. My biggest surprise within the first week was just like how well the plants did. Like I was really worried that they weren't gonna grow that well and they were so happy and grew faster than anywhere I've ever farmed. Like we planted and five weeks later we were harvesting radishes, salad mix, lettuce heads, and that definitely surprised me. The farm takes up 2,400 square feet of space, just 1 16th of an acre. Nevertheless, Lindsay and her team were able to grow over 5,000 pounds of produce in 2017, and they hope to grow a similar amount this year. All her crops are organized in neat long rows of milk crates. We have uh, 2,300 milk crates here, and then each milk crate has a recycled woven um, fabric, plastic uh, fabric, that allows for drainage and air to move. The farm works in tandem with other initiatives like a food pantry for food insecure patients and a hospital farmer's market. It's really integrated into a, a fuller picture of what it means to care for people in a way that I think more hospitals should be doing it. So if we walk over here, this so this was a section that was planted first on the farm, um, and it's a mix of crops that I can keep harvesting from. So there's like collard greens, kale here uh, that I will continue for like two to three months to harvest and make bundles from. And then we've intercropped some of our more summer specific crops. So we have poblano peppers here. I have a lot of bell peppers, a few habaneros. To our right, a series of wire domes poke out of a row of crates. These are all hoop houses that we um, added for season extension. So in the springtime and in the fall, we cover this with row cloth, these hoops, and that way it mitigates against frost um, and creates like a little bit of a microclimate so we can start earlier than if it were just all open. And then the fall that allows us to keep growing till about mid-November. Alan leads the way to another set of crates. See, this is a huge patch of carrots that are almost ready. I planted them to time so that when we have our summer camps up here in two weeks, like the kids can help me harvest carrots because it's a really rewarding and fun experience if you haven't harvested carrots. You have this green top and kind of think of it as a nice surprise when you pull it out. Or I've had kids up here like scream as they pull it out of not knowing <laughs> what was actually below the soil. Then she walks around to the other side of the row. These are all the cucumbers on this side. So we have three different varieties of cucumbers. Uh, then we have bok choy that's interplanted um, and basil plants as well interplanted with the tomatoes and the peppers. Interplanted to maximize urban growing space and encourage a variety of beneficial insects to pay a visit. We try to think of this farm as much of an ecosystem as possible. Like how do we keep all of the scraps that we aren't actually using for food, keep them on site so we can continue to create soil um, and compost up here. And then we also have bees um, to help pollinate and, and then we get honey. So <laughs> that's always a plus with keeping bees. Yeah, where are the bees? They are, we can go up over here. They will be inside their hives today, but we can peek at them. Oh, there's a few coming in and going. They're brave. Two bee boxes, each crammed with thousands of bees. 
For a look at how all that farm-fresh food makes it to patient plates, I head over to the cafeteria. Hi, my name is Tracy Berg. I'm the Culinary Nutrition Manager at Boston Medical Center's Teaching Kitchen. The Teaching Kitchen is a healthy food project that got its start before the farm. Each class incorporates fresh food from the farm into cooking lessons that demonstrate BMC's food as medicine philosophy. Our classes are free. We invite anybody to come in, but also people with diabetes, heart disease, cancer, renal patients. They come in for classes and we talk about disease-specific foods and and, uh, cooking techniques that are healthy for them. I visit Tracy during one of her classes. For her first dish, she whips out a blender from one of the cabinets behind her. All right, so this this, um, this this sherbet recipe has two ingredients. This mango here. We're going to add one cup of vanilla Greek yogurt. And then a little bit of water. Okay, we'll blend this up. She also adds a dollop of honey, straight from the bees on the farm. For the main course, Tracy grabs a cucumber out of the fridge and begins to chop. Tabbouleh is um, wheat chopped up, and we're going to put some parsley in here. You can use mint, too. Parsley and mint taste delicious in tabbouleh. I was taking the mint from our farm yesterday. Tracy says the farm has been a huge asset to her work in the kitchen. Oh, well, the farm's great. I mean, I get my produce from there. But it also, it's a, a learning space for us now, too. So I bring all my groups up there at some point during the growing season. And we pick the vegetables up there. We bring it down to the kitchen and we cook it. And so it's kind of like farm to table right in front of them. The farm has been a remarkable addition to the neighborhood, too. The south end of Boston was once considered a food desert. Again, farm manager Lindsay Allen. There's a few grocery stores now popping up, but it's a pretty intense part of the city that not only has food access issues, but it also there's like no green space around here. Despite the role that fresh fruits and vegetables have in staying healthy, people are often shocked to learn about the hospital's rooftop farm. Most people associate hospitals with terrible food, which is really interesting because right where we're like at our most vulnerable when we're in our hospitals and you'd think that would mean we need the nourishing food. Lindsay says that Boston Medical Center's approach is a holistic take on healthcare that looks beyond the immediate needs of their patients. Right now, they're also looking forward to a bumper crop of tomatoes. Thanks for that report, Jamie. Uh, and uh, hey, did you get to try anything? Yep, I did. That mango sherbet is awesome. I'm jealous. We head to Anchorage, Alaska now for another installment in the occasional Living on Earth, Orion Magazine series, The Place Where You Live. Orion invites readers to submit essays to the magazine's website to put places they care about on the map, and we give them a voice. My name is Sasha Johnson, and this is my essay called Anchorage, Alaska. Anchorage, Alaska, home and point of departure, nestled along a sloping peninsula between the mountains and the sea. Young, adventurous, bold, addicted, drunken, old, 
squeezing out the space between the Chugach and Cook Inlet, climbing up the hillside stretching north and south, digging and drilling and mining and tilling, disorganized as driftwood, sliced up and down by the highway, tucked into neighborhoods cockeyed and rent-choked, sporting proud your homes on the heights, overlooking the boar tide, rolling in turnigan arms, eagles and geese flying low over Potter Marsh with a view to Fire Island, where the windmills eke out their promises. You bedeck your winter streets with gravel, coat them with ice and snow, groom them with snowplows and brush them clean for summer. We live outside in all weathers. We hitchhike, we hold cardboard signs. We head to the back country in Hatcher Pass, find ways to make the winter last through summer's short gas. We roost with the ravens and run native corporations. We are mountaineers and mistresses hobos and halibut fishermen. We dip net for salmon and hunt oil on the north slope two weeks on, two weeks on. Bush pilots and line cooks, airmen and officers, bankers and railroaders, coal men and climbers. We call you home, Anchorage. You beggar, troublemaker, reckless one, dreamer, heart of Alaska. Independent and willful, but keen for community. Just a big city spread with a small town rumor. Let's drive out to catch the festival. I'll listen to your music again by anybody's fire, barefoot, eyes closed, rocking the stage with homegrown song. Taste your salmon, smoked and grilled and salty on my tongue. Feel your cold bite in the morning. Catch the scent of spruce wood and birch wet with dew. I head over a sunset ridge and you disappear from view. Uh, I have lived in Anchorage for two years only. Um, it's new for me, but I'm, I'm 36 and it's the first place that I ever felt like I could really call home. And I had that feeling immediately in the geography, in the landscape, the mountains, the rivers, the forests, and then in the people. The people uh, felt like my people for the first time. Um, strange, eccentric, uh, adventuresome people who were willing to risk, who loved the outdoors, and were willing to fight for what they wanted, even if it isolated them from other people. I felt a kinship with those people. I teach, but I also ski. And I know mountaineers and I've spent time with them. I wanted to be a bush pilot. And I've seen all of our homeless tramps and hobos on the street. So these are familiar faces to me. These are people I've known and some of them are things I've done. Some of the references in this essay are experiences I've had. Some of them are people I've known and some of them are things I hope to do. I see Anchorage as a place of dreams for many people, and some of these dreams are broken. Everybody that I've met has a story, and not all of them want to tell that story. There are many reasons why people come to Alaska and end up in Anchorage, 
and you can feel the yearning in the stories of the people that you get to meet. You see poverty, you see wealth, you see people struggling daily all around you, and you see success, families, children. Um, it's a place where people struggle to make it and struggle to build a life. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful place, but there's, it's a place you can feel the, the struggle. That's Sasha Johnson on her new home in Anchorage, Alaska. You can find pictures and details about Orion Magazine and how to submit an essay about the place where you live at our website, LOE.org. On the next Living on Earth, combat veteran divers use their military training to help save marine life. Let's take the training these guys already have and now repurpose it and retool them to do conservation work after they get out of the military because they want to save the world. That's who they are. From combat to conservation, that's next time on Living on Earth. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Thurston Briscoe, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Anna Gibbs, Don Lyman, Maggie O'Brien, Ainsley O'Neill, Sarah Rappaport, Jake Rigo, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from John Gesso. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Jamie Kaiser. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. PRI, Public Radio International.